this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing and reappraising podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network Brought to you by the California College of the Arts' MFA in Writing Program. This is Be Real. It's a genre-hopping podcast. We're so excited to be with you. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And as is just a joyous custom, maybe twice a year, something that we care about and you may not at all, <laughs> we're staring right at each other. Yeah, usually we're on Skype, recording from Brooklyn and Portland, respectively. But right now, we're both in Portland, on the third floor of Natalie Serber's, where are we? What neighborhood are <laughs> I think we in? house is the word you're looking for. Off division. That's right. Portland. Noah, why are you here? I'm here for AWP, the Association of Writing and Writing Professionals annual conference, which moves from city to city. Which is a giant deal in your industry. Yeah, there's 15,000 people uh, publishing adjacent folk uh that I've been doing meetings with and like catching up with clients and friends who are writers or publishing people. Uh, later we'll be talking to Nick White, uh, who's been on the podcast before and the author of sweet and low and then Natalie Serber, whose Airbnb I'm staying in, uh, author of Shout Her Lovely Name from Houghton Mifflin a couple of years ago. Very smart people who are going to talk to us about their favorite they, movies yeah. about writers. They had such good opinions about movies and writers and how writers are portrayed and the adaptation of your own work so yeah i think it'll be there'll be fun conversations but as we always do on this show we've picked three movies of a what we like to believe at least is a pretty tight genre and so movies about writers is you know dozens upon dozens upon dozens they're rendered a lot on the screen we zoned in on a more contracted category which is literary hoaxes right in which a writer has committed some crime to achieve some level of fortune for like a second i just can't wait to hear you talk about how realistic these movies are with regard to the publishing industry they're not that realistic if i'm being if just as a spoiler that's why i want to hear you talk about it if they were all had incredible like fidelity to reality it'd be no fun at all but we're going to talk about can you ever forgive me which came out just a few months back received some uh, oscar nominations yeah for richard e grant and Melissa McCarthy. And Melissa McCarthy, yeah. We're going to talk about The Hoax, which is a 2006 Lass Hellstrom movie with uh, Richard Gere, Alfred yeah, about, Molina. Yeah, Alfred Molina. Uh, yeah, it's about the this guy who in the 70s claimed that he had written the only authorized biography of Howard Hughes. Right. I was unfamiliar with both of these like actual hoaxes. Right, me too. And then the third one, of course, is of not course. a real life event, but Secret Window, in which 
Johnny Depp's Stephen King character is accused of plagiarism. Which swept the Oscars in 2004. I think it went wholly unnoticed. Oh, wait, I'm confusing it with having never won anything or been spoken about ever again. (laughs) I mean, except for podcasts that look backwards in this fashion. That's right. Um, So what are we talking about first, my guy? Where do you want to begin? Probably Can You Ever Forget Me? Because that's a movie that a lot of people have sort of seen and thought about recently. Nobody is going to pay for the writer Lee Israel right now. I'm months behind in my rent, and my cat is sick. It's four in the afternoon, and you're drunk. I'm hardly drunk. Crazy. No problem. My suggestion to you is you go out there and you find another way to make a living. Recently found this delightful sign letter. Fanny Bryce, one of my favorites. I could give you 75. Oh. I could give more for better content. It's a bit bland is all. Yeah, I can definitely get a lot more for this one. I mean, the PS makes it priceless. Quite by accident, I find myself in a rather criminal position. What criminal activity could possibly involve it except a crime of fashion, of course? I'm embellishing literary letters by prominent writers. I love his writing. Particularly clever, don't you think? Caustic wit. <sighs> this is quite something. He's a wonderful. I thought so, too. Name your price. You were looking at one month's rent. What are we going to do? Gamble? Shop? Drink? <laughs> Ms. Israel, I have a couple of questions regarding the last letter I purchased. Uh-oh. What seems to be the problem? This is the story of, as Noah said, Lee Israel in the late 80s in New York City. Um, she's a, a nonfiction author and a, and a biographer, right? Of yes. sort of um, like scholarly writing that like not a lot of people are interested notably her publisher when it comes time for the next one and she ends up forging letters by help me with the people there's dorothy parker's the main one noel coward that's right um famous literary famously witty literary folk right and she writes these little like aphorisms for them either as addendums to already written letters that she steals or these ones that she just contrives using like the same technique as you would making a aged paper science project with your mom in the third grade there's some good like catch me if you can simplicity to yeah there's not quite a scene with a bunch of uh plastic airplanes in a bathtub but there's some pretty cool typewriters like a ton of typewriters like stacked in one place shot and then she sells them to antique dealers and literary brokers. A lo- Is that yeah. I don't really know anything about. I know nothing about okay. that. Um, Cause it's more like it's for collectors, right? right? It's like bookstores that also sell like rare and used books. So like the strand and things like that are probably, mm-hmm. I mean, apparently she didn't make more than a few thousand dollars off the scheme. Right. We're talking about like a different, like this person's just subsisting on this thing that ended up being this huge sort of controversy. Yeah. But it otherwise like was not a terribly lucrative hoax. Right. Did we say, by the way, I'm sorry, this is the most elementary thing in the world, but you're an agent. 
Oh yeah, don't people know that? I think people know that, but I wonder if other people are me being like, "Do you know about this corner of like the literary world?" Yeah, and they're being like, "Why would he know that?" So, um, yeah, I pay the bills by being an agent representative for writers of fiction and nonfiction attempting to get book deals from major corporate publishers. You're the Jane Curtin of this story. I am. You're Jane the one Curtin. who tells Lee Israel, like Lee, we've had a nice connection over the years, even though you're a huge asshole. Um, but this book is not going to sell. So like, well, what had happened in her career was that she had sold a book on proposal to do an Estee Lauder biography, and Estee Lauder and her team and her brand were so like unhappy about this having happened that they put out an authorized autobiography that she did just to have something to compete with it in the marketplace, something like very, you know, sort of washed over and whitewashed who's uh, Estee Lauder tell the people she's a famous uh, uh makeup designer okay I think isn't that a that's a brand of of makeup right I don't know I don't that's not something I've ever purchased I'll check it later <laughs> yeah and so nobody bought the book and it wasn't very well reviewed anyway because she had to rush to finish it to compete with the book which it didn't and then yeah, and then she's just stuck in her apartment with no rent money and like this fucking dying cat. So, how's Melissa McCarthy in this movie? Because the two, the two sort of uh, Oscar noms for it were Melissa McCarthy as Leah Israel, the the forger in question, and then Richard E. Grant as her sort of, uh, you know, he's not doing it for like any ex- expert reason. He's just kind of like her cohort. She like runs into him she, around town. They're both, al- they're both alcoholics. They're just friends. They both have this sort of like iconoclastic approach to life, prank calls, being very prickly, um, being sort of slowly crushed down by New York in the late 80s. Sounds like most of the friends that I have in New York City. Sure. Yeah, they're friends. And they get into this weird, very low stakes thing. But this movie sort of sets out that this very small thing was such an act of rebellion by this writer that it was something bigger than, you know, a couple thousand dollars. Cause like these letters are still attributed to, they're still out in the world. Right. That people still, um, it ends up in books and stuff and quotes like official quotes from people using her, her forgeries. So do you agree with the mainstream opinion that the performances are the strongest part of this movie? What was your kind of main takeaway? I just thought it was somewhat miraculous that they made such a small story seem so powerful. Mm -hmm. Like when this woman's cat dies, which is like in the Roland Emmerich scheme of things, like not a very big deal. Sure. Uh, Neither is our podcast, unfortunately. Right. When the uh, asteroid it's, wipes it's, out the it's city. heartbreaking to see that. Yeah. And you really feel like you're connected. So that must go back to the performances. I mean, this is this is basically just a, a long character study mm-hmm. akin to, you know, many successful Charlie Kaufman movies at Al. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So Mariel Heller's the director. Um, I really liked the movie she did before this, Diary of a Teenage Girl. Do you remember that movie? I do not. It's like Belle Powley was like a memoir, was the star. It's like a cartoonist memoir um, set in the 70s. Oh, Kristen yeah. Wiig's the mom. She I sleeps with Alexander Skarsgård. I think it's really good. Um, and I think the direction's really good in this movie too. Sure. It has the sort of like, for mostly being 
people chopping it up in rooms. It has a very smooth but like smoky, convincing period piece kind of vibe about it. It's like drab but like a little bit arresting. Um, and then I think her brother did the score. It's like a great kind of jazzy huh. moves you through this. I think all of these movies on some level, because they're not, Natalie and Nick are going to talk later about like movies about writers, honest to goodness, sort of like creators. Right. And a lot of movies try to capture some like moments of inspiration or complications with that inspiration. But these movies are more like, they're so processy, right? You need to get sucked into the scheme, and the score of this movie really brings you deep into the like, oh, is it was she gonna move the typewriter line back over? Like what's gonna happen next? Is it gonna work at this bookstore? Is it gonna work at this bookstore? It's a pretty watchable, exciting movie for being about letters. Well, it's ultimately a confidence movie, which all three of these movies in yeah, some that's way. What I mean. That's a better way to put that. You know, it's it has that Ocean's Eleven y kind of feel to it of like how far down the line is this person going to go um and the answer and like kind of compellingly it's like not that far (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know it's just such a rudimentary scheme but it speaks to you know as a writer like what this person's purpose is like she seems to not be she she um, israel and via mccarthy almost comes to the realization by the end of the movie that like this was her purpose to like give voice to and like she really feels like she's accomplished something that's the thing about the movie i don't buy but that's i think the that historically accurate so i don't know like what how can you be well this is my this is the main thing i think stops the movie going from good to great okay from like a bb plus to like an a is that the judge at some point asks her like Lee, do you have some genuine contrition you'd like to express about this? And she kind of gets into this mode of like, I was Dorothy Parker. This was me. This is what I used my well of creativity for. Right. Which I don't think the movie has, as far as we can tell, she is as good at impersonating Dorothy Parker's voice as she is making the parchment look real, right? I, do, I sort of don't buy, in the same way I don't buy something like Howl. Um, How dare you put these two movies in the same? I'm talking about a specific quality. I don't buy, and of course movies are bad at portraying this, I don't buy the moment, the spark of creativity. The like, I am being, and now I am on the page. And like, this is... It, movies can't capture that and this movie sort of insists at the end that it did well i mean if when it captures that moment of inspiration it's when she is so desperate and she's just like playing with with this thing that she's found from the the archive or whatever yeah and she's at a moment of such desperation with her ailing cat and her rent being months and months overdue I mean, it's kind of interesting to see that process unfurl, but I get what you're saying. But what does that have to do with, like, I am writer, I am new voice of Dorothy Parker? Right. Well, I think this movie is an interesting comparison to uh, Wonder Boys, Mm. which Natalie can explain, and I don't have to get too much into, but the idea of you need to not be a, you need to like pursue this non writerly writer thing in order to unlock the story, which was you getting to this place. Mm -hmm. It's almost setting up like that. Well, then I had a cool experience and I wrote a memoir about it, which is ultimately how these 
stories both ends. Yeah, how do you feel about the fact, we talked about this a little bit the other day, but that all these movies about charlatans, or, I mean, one of them's fake, but the hoax and, uh, can you ever forgive me, end with essentially like, and I, I, you know what, I actually created the, the great story of my life out of lies, and now I will be very successful because of it. Each of these movies posits that like it was some crime or something that led to the success of this person, you know, and I think that's an interesting way to understand the writer in terms of, you know, that role in cinema. That they just needed a story and this was it. Right. Their but story they, was not having one. But there's almost a level of like complicitness with writer engaged in bad behavior to elicit story so I could write about it kind of thing. All the movies at their heart kind of believe that Definitely. the writer is the cause of his own turmoil and then success. Yeah, yeah. How do you think we should feel about that? Do you have a feeling? I think it misrepresents. Well, that's what it's I, not I like have a big like Jordan Belfort or anything. But what does it misrepresent? I just think that it misrepresents like what the writer is to society. It's like not necessarily all these like hoaxy people, these charlatans trying to like gain some edge or something. There's like something so anti-capitalist about how most writers operate. Sure. <laughs> That these ones are sort of on the end of this spectrum akin to like your self-published people who, you know, like it's they're more in common with Fifty Shades of Grey than like any writers that we've been talking to this week during this mm-hmm. professional conference. Um, but yeah, so that kind of frustrates me as looking at like, it's almost like a fake media narrative or uh, fake news where it's like, well, if this writer hadn't like, you know, stolen this poor working class guy's story, then he's he's getting what's coming to him. But but so do all writers. Like this is this is how they operate. You know, and purporting to like sort of speculating that the only way one can be successful is through that sort of enterprise. I feel like I want to hold on to some of these broader points for later, but I do kind of want to just like interview you a little bit. We talked about this. How do you feel about the fact that as far back as 1970, which is, or the hoax is set in like 74, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, Clifford Irving is like, I want to write like this super literary fiction. And the publishers are like, this industry is changing and crumbling and that won't sell. It's like it, people have been trying to solve the same problem and sort of like sky is falling about the same thing for like maybe 50 years. Yeah, I mean, that's just how the publishing industry operates is from a place of fear okay, uh, that the industry will be gone tomorrow. And one day it will be. Uh, and so they don't want to publish your book of authorized biography. They get a very, very like conservative idea in their heads. They just like throw as much money as they can at it. And this mm-hmm. particular idea, if we're transitioning a little bit towards the hoax, is that... Uh, well, we should come with the final rating for can you ever forgive me sure and also we've heard from a couple people recently including no ballard that the the rating segment too long so we're going to explain it as quick as we can we rate movies on a bifurcated system on this show you don't just have to speak quickly you just have to explain it simply we rate movies in four ways good 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 bad bad good bad bad 
And the first good or bad refers to like, is the movie well made? And the second one is, was it fun to watch? Right. So a good, good movie was like, oh, that was awesome. And I enjoyed every moment. Jaws. Uh, bad good is the movie is like a piece of shit but like so much fun because in Gone in 60 Seconds Nicolas Cage gets to like give that impassioned speech about stealing cars that movie sucks but I take your point good bad would be like uh, Daniel, Day- <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis yelling uh, Crucible <laughs> bad bad any number of any movie that's like truly bad yeah that has no merit in your you opinion. saw it and you were like yuck yep okay so that's how you rate movies uh, can you ever forgive me I think it's a probably a good good movie it's, it wasn't... I agree with you. It was maybe my, like, 35th favorite movie of last year. Um, I think it'd be a little bit higher for me. Um, but I take your point. And I took your point earlier where this is, like, a B plus. I don't mm-hmm. think this is an A minus. But uh, enjoyable, though. And yeah. I think a, a realistic look at the desperation that some writers feel and that very american thing of like what's the scammy thing i can do just to subsist and we didn't really talk about it that much but melissa mccarthy is good in the movie she's very good she it's really nice to see her sort of like take some things off um and be both vulnerable and like really prickly yeah it's her eternal sunshine of the spotless mind to jim carrey yeah except i unlike Jim Carrey, when he does that stuff, feels like he's putting just as much on as he does in Ace Venture. Like, I am doing a serious movie, man. And Melissa McCarthy, it's I think, is probably a better yeah. actor. Oh, definitely. Than James Carrey. Jimmy? Jimmy Carrey. Have you, do, you, do you look at his politically motivated paintings where he, like, he like the, makes these bulbous renderings <laughs> of political figures? I only see them when people retweet them to make fun of them. Like, why are we doing this? And I'm like, I don't know. Why are you? Otherwise, I would have known these existed. Yeah, his uh, comedian's car is getting coffee. It was pretty dark. Oh, yeah. And he, like, <laughs> drinks, like, chocolate syrup from, like, he lies on the floor and somebody puts it in a... It's like, this is success, man. Like, getting this honey into this cup of tea from three feet above it. This is what happens when you make, like, $50 million in one single year. <laughs> uh, you believe yourself, God. So, yeah, good, good for... It's a good movie. Can you ever forgive me? And I, like I said, I feel weirdly my the only hot ish take I have in the movie is that it's actually better directed than it is written. I would agree with that. For I being think a it's movie a pretty about standard a... like con artisty hoaxy movie, and the directing is what separates it, and the performances. Like even the woman at the bookstore that she scams, who they developed like a romantic thing, like that was a really good supporting. I don't know the actress's name. And her and Melissa McCarthy's real life husband Ben Falcone is good in the movie too. I think he's like oh sort yeah of the, he's uh, like the like the, the guy who'll buy anything. He'll buy anything, but like not stolen stuff, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's not that pleasurable to watch the kind of like the fuzz approach because it's like it's not exactly Goodfellas, the fall in this movie. Like you said, it's it's just like people being like, "Hey, have you been?" We're like the 116th most important FBI division. Have, right. have you been forging? Please cease and desist. Please return my call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a nice movie. Um, let's go to a, a quick word from a sponsor and a person smarter than we are. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. 
Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo. And their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. Are we ready to do this? Okay. Natalie Serber, author of New York Times notable (laughs) book, Shout Her Lovely Name. What is your favorite movie about writers? The movie that first comes to mind that I will claim is my favorite, but I could be talked down from it, is The Wonder Boys. Wonder Boys. Yeah, the Michael Chabon adaptation. Yes. What do you like about it? Well, when I watched it, when it first came out, which I don't remember what year it was, I remember this the moment when they're driving along in a convertible and the manuscript is in the back seat. Oh, yeah. That's the climactic scene. Yes. And the... Sorry, spoiler the manuscript blows away and all the pages are flying off. Have you ever had an experience where you lost something that you had been working on? Yes. Tell us about it. Well, wait, can I first tell you about why oh, I please, like that go scene? go back. Okay, so when I saw it as a younger <laughs> writer, <laughs> I was horrified. I was like, oh my God, that is, I had palpitations, like that is the worst nightmare. But now in my career and having like a a first pancake novel that never saw the light of day, I just think that is like the most horrifying and exhilarating moment at one and the same time. It's like, yes, there goes all your work flying out of the back of the car. But oh my God, thank God, there goes all that work flying out of the back of the car. I never have to look at that again. And so for me... I think that is just like the most penultimate, beautiful, up-down moment. So that's why I like that film. But I did lose a manuscript once. Um, on I don't know. It got blown off my hard drive or something happened. And I was horrified and depressed. But then it was also kind of liberating because I still had enough of it and I had enough notes that I could rewrite it in a way that was actually, I ultimately hope, better. Do you think that writers are, for the most part, accurately portrayed in cinema? No. Why? Well, just in the way that nobody is accurately portrayed in cinema. I mean, it's like there's no no archetype for a writer. So, I mean, I think some of our foibles and anxieties are accurately portrayed insecurity and desire for love and desire to connect and desire to um, make readers feel less alone. I think that is accurately portrayed. But in the individual, I don't think so. Did you ever cast in your mind your novel? Absolutely. Who would be the who would be in yours? Well, I used to want Laura Linney. Sure, I can see that. And I, I still like Laura Linney, but um, I'm in love with Better Things. So Pamela Adlon, I love her. And I think she, the novel that I'm working on now, I think she could absolutely just nail it. What about for the daughter, though? In in Shout Her Lovely Name? Who would you? 
I don't know. Who would you? Who do you think? She's too old to do it now, but I always thought like a, maybe like a Kristen Stewart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that you say that because she's so badass. Yeah. And she's like in charge and because I think... I mean, those two characters had a lot of agency, I remember. But I could see like a, a younger, like super young um, Winona Ryder person could potentially do do the character of Nora. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always did like the idea of Laura Linney as the mom. Yeah. I like her. How should we follow you on the internet or otherwise? Well, I have a newsletter called Read, Write, Eat that you can sign up for on my website, natalieserber.com. And it comes out every two weeks. And in it, I write about things I'm eating and enjoying, things I'm reading and enjoying, and ideas for writing, everything from prompts to remembering to appreciate writers by sending little love notes and um, remembering to put yourself in the place of learning as often as possible. Set yourself in the path of being a student because it's a never-ending pleasure. Cool. Thanks for putting me up for five days. You're welcome anytime. The room now is called Noah's Room. Oh, great. (laughs) Everyone leave a positive review in the Airbnb. (laughs) Thank Thank you. Thank you. We're talking about the hoax? The hoax. You're really going to make me sit on my secret window opinions for another 20 minutes? I think that's the main event there. And we better put it last. We better put it last or no one will. All right. So the hoax, we watched together. It was the only movie we watched together. We rented it from a video store, guys. Movie Madness. Movie Madness. And I'm wearing a Movie Madness t-shirt. Did How you about see some that I was wearing this? I did. How about some free publicity for Portland's own Movie Madness? That place is great. What a, yeah, what a utopia. Great. It is a utopia. Um, all my Instagram followers saw how excited I was. Um, this was a wonderful trip. I loved hanging out with you. If I have one regret, it's that the only movie we watched together was The Hoax. <laughs> There's like just nothing out. And like we'd both seen Us already. Didn't want to see Beach Bum. And I he didn't told me. See, I didn't want to see. I didn't it got, want to getting... see Matthew McConaughey play a movie poet called Moondog. I don't know when we would have done it. Hmm. I'm sorry, brother. No, it's fine. I'm just kidding. I'm... Do you want me to make my flight later? I know you can't, but can you? He could. <laughs> Thank you, um, Ron Howard boys. Right. Uh, but I had a lot of fun <laughs> watching The Hoax with you. It was kind of like a underrated movie to do so. McGraw-Hill is not publishing your book. Book gone. The bomb has dropped. I've had it! Clifford Irving had nothing. Little my life is at hand. I don't have a couch. Until... I got it, I got it. He told a little white lie. I'm working on the most important book of the 20th century. Couldn't you have just said of the decade? Howard Hughes, the billionaire? His exclusive authorized autobiography. And sold it. How? For big bucks. I want an advance to $1 million. A million dollars? As soon as they find out it's a fake, they'll sue you for libel. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Clifford Irving. Getting the money was the easy part. Now you can still back out, but you've got to tell me now. Back out? Yeah. No, no, where, where are the musketeers? Getting away with it was another story. It's got everything here, the syntax, his speech patterns, everything. Take a picture. You can't photograph a government document. Until you can memorize and take a picture. So the hoax no no already basically set up. It's this guy named Clifford Irving who is also sort of like played a, by Richard Gere, who's super too old to be playing this role. There's like a point where someone's like trying to you know 
Richard, you're only 35. Yeah, pump him up and being like, Henry Miller wasn't successful till he was 38. And Noah and I were like, we're looking at a 60-year-old man <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> you need to get this reference a little older. Um, but yeah, he plays this guy, Clifford Irving, who sort of in the same way is like publish some stuff. He's like around. He is getting meetings at what's the publisher? Macmillan. No. Uh, McGraw Hill? Uh, McGraw Hill, who just who solely does textbooks now. But I guess in the 70s they did trade books as well. And one of the editors like wanted to hear from him. She's like, Clifford, what are you working on? And he's like, I have this book called Rudnick's Problem. It like sounds like Thomas Pynchon wrote it. And they're yeah, like. It sounds like the uh, Philip Roth novel. Oh, sure. Yep. And then, of course, like people read it and they're like, "It's like a ripoff of Philip Roth," and they don't want to publish it. But like, he's no, already like, bought that. a new car, and he bought like scuba gear because he's yeah. he's also sort of like a just a bizarre man who within I mean, kudos to the movie for moving along, but the amount of time it takes this guy to be like, "Well, they don't want to publish Rudnick's problem." I'm going to falsify an interview with Howard Hughes is <laughs> like maybe nine and a half minutes. Yeah, he, he does spend a, a little bit of time in the desert there. Uh, but I don't know. This movie is interesting because it does make that pivot pretty seamlessly of like, there's no difference between a guy who will say something like, oh, my my accountant will come over later to the car dealership to pick my down payment on this car and then drive it off the lot. Right. And then like taking a million dollar advance for the... Unauth- the authorized slash unauthorized biography of Howard Hughes, the 20th century tycoon. Totally compulsive liar. But it's just such a, it's such a leap though. Like, did you, I mean, I guess you knew kind of what the movie was going into it. You weren't surprised by the plot of it, but could you believe that he's so quickly, the way Lee Israel so like of desperation does this thing? Did you buy that he would just like be like, well, I'm going to write this letter on this overhead projector and see how much money I can get from this major organization that he rightly could get legitimate work from had he just come up with a better idea. You make a good point. That's the only place I want to see Richard Gere go. So I was very forgiving of the movie taking him there fast. But like I, yeah, like I said, the lead up to the movie is like nonsense. He's like... <laughs> He's really good friends with Alfred Molina, who's like a, a talented researcher, but also is just like this like sidecar personality to this man. And then he has a, a wife in the country who's Marcia Gay Harden doing a really not very convincing French accent. She's doing her best Julie Delpy impression, which is a shame because Julie Delpy is also in this movie. That's right. As Clifford as Irving's lover. Mistress, yeah. But it just looks like Marsha Gay Harden is wearing a Julie Delpy from the hoax Halloween costume. Right. Which is so weird and clearly like on purpose to be like, he found the hotter actually French one and it was okay that she was his mistress because of it or something. Yeah. So yeah, he just comes home after Life Magazine is like, we don't want to publish your Philip Roth knockoff and is like, well, guys, Howard Hughes and Marsha Gay Harden's like, I am very comfortable with you mate, writing, faking a Howard Hughes thing. And Alfred Molina's like, I don't have a job or a wife, except I do have a wife and it's going to become very important later. But Even like, though we're I'll, never going to meet her on I'll, screen. <laughs> I'll happily fly all over the Bahamas and the Western United States. Yeah, they're like in Nassau at one point and then they like follow someone to Miami. Yeah. It's like, how do they have the startup capital to do this caper? It's strange. It's strange. Um, but eventually, yeah, they convince uh, McGraw-Hill that they have this biography, 
where Howard Hughes, who famously hasn't made any public appearances in like 20 years, is going to be working with him. And he's the only one that is trusted. Because, yeah, because Hughes... is the sole conduit between Howard right. Hughes and the publishing company. It's a pretty... I mean, even though, like, a lot of lies that suspend disbelief ensue... It's a great con because it's so hard to catch someone who claims to be channeling the voice of somebody who overreacts wildly, who can't be reached, who is like also playing the media and broader political landscape for his own needs. There is no like truth to pin him to for the longest time. And it's so smart. I guess that's to Clifford Irving's credit, not the movie. Right. I mean, and I think the movie is accurate in showing how easy it is to swindle incompetent people. Yeah. <laughs> and how charlatans are drawn to the publishing industry for exactly that reason. I wonder if, too, do you feel like the notion of like a white whale book really appeals to like people in the industry with deep pockets? Because that's kind of what this is. He's like, oh, you don't want to publish my middling bullshit? Well, I have, what if I said I could have the thing that nobody else has? Is that the kind of thing that like gets people's minds running in overdrive? Is that fair? Yeah. People were bidding on the Mueller report before it was even released. There you go. You know, people paid something like $85 million for Obama's next like four publishing projects. And he's on Twitter. And like no book ever has made that much money. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's craziness, but like I think that's a pretty accurate portrayal of the way publishing works. I mean, it's even sort of speaks to that. This guy is the 70s equivalent to, if anyone read that New Yorker piece about Dan Mallory, who... So glad you made me read that. Was this editor who... Well, so that the article sort of posits that not only did he totally fabricate most of his resume... He then may or may not have plagiarized this wildly successful novel under the pseudonym A.J. Finn. Uh, called, the book is called The Woman in the Window. It's going to be yeah, a movie soon. It's going to be a movie soon. They've already filmed it. Uh, and I'll drag it on this podcast and just see what we can do. But yeah, it reminds me of him where it's this guy who was sort of sneaking his way around town. Yeah. And finally he figured out the way to... Frank Abagnale it and totally did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So speaking of dragging, the hoax is a very easy movie to pick apart. But I do want to say that for like a half hour there, when Richard Gere is like lying through his teeth to relay stories about Howard Hughes, you want to know the line that got me? It's when he talks about him and those fucking prunes, is it? Dick Suskin, same scene. Dick Suskin's the Alfred Molina character, his researcher being flown down to Nassau. He's lying through his teeth. And he's just like, it was a bumpy flight. But you know what? This bush pilot, he had touch. And he was just like, here is a guy who is spinning a yarn with fibers so thick that you want to be in there. And right. that's also when Richard Gere is at his best. Um, because you want to... Noah's going to say that Richard Gere is like a worthless actor. And he's Richard not. Richard Gere is a worthless <laughs> actor. <laughs> Richard Gere belongs to a club, and I'm still working on this, but it's a concept we've talked about informally on the show before, 
We could call him a vessel actor. We could say he belongs to the Clay Club. He, along with like a Wahlberg and a Costner, is the kind of actor who only Dennis really Quaid. works well when a yes, when a movie is doing something with him. When a and as sort of you know manipulative as this sounds, when a writer or director is like, I know what that guy can bring to the screen. I'm gonna use it. And I think that's what this movie does with Richard Gere for a while. Is like I want to see him lie intoxicatingly because like this is like a this is like a puffed up silver fox who's like, you know, but there is no there there with any of the people I talked about, including Richard Gere. So when the movie turns toward like, did any of this really happen? You want to yeah, look, you want to look like inside beautiful the mind thing where it's like, right. did he actually believe that the book was going to happen? Like, did he believe that there was some conspiracy against Richard Nixon that was like perpetuating this thing, which is such a weird note to sort of end it on being that like maybe mental illness is the root of his right massive ego and inability to tell the truth. And I just feel that when you start to look at the like, what is the essence of an actor like Richard Gere? The answer is something I don't want to see. Like something I don't believe. You know, like why do you think Richard Gere got into acting? <laughs> it's not any reason that like makes him more likable. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what people find so compelling about him. His best movies, he's like playing weird. Primal Fear, it's fun to watch him get duped. Dr. T and the Women. You ever seen that movie? That no. movie's terrible. No. Uh, Pretty Woman, Pretty Woman, it's fun to see Julia Roberts act him off the screen with her naturalism. Right. This movie needs a Julia Roberts. It does not have it. Um, you and I, we have to say though, howled at alfred molina <laughs> when who like weirdly wants to keeps jumping at answering the publisher's questions when clearly richard gear's a better liar right and he's like he gave me a prune and then he drinks a gallon of water <laughs> to like try and hide the lie it's like the worst poker face you've ever seen he's it was so funny good. we there was howled a lot of fun yeah it was a lot of funny physical humor but it like didn't really match up with the richard gear kind of mirthless anti-humor yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I'm not sure that any <laughs> of these it? movies... I liked it anyway. I'm not sure how great of character studies any of these movies are. Because there are these moments in this movie too where like Alf Molina's trying to get Richard Gere not to cheat on his wife anymore. Don't cheat with Julie Delpy anymore. And he says, um, you know... Nina, that's an unstable road. She's no good for us. And it's like, here's this sidekick trying to live so vicariously through this guy that he's like, your mistress is like a bad financial decision for, for me. And you're like, what is your life, Alfred Molina? Right. And then there's but the, the wife thing is so troubling. But then it totally blows that up. Yeah. By giving him a wife who we never see, as you said. And then having him cheat on her with a woman we also don't really know very right. well. And then he, the whole emotional hook of the movie is is based on him feeling bad that he cheated on his wife, which Richard Gere actually set up. Yeah. Get out of here, Dr. T. The back half of the movie is like a uh, a hot mess. And like, holy shit, Last Halstrom makes so many weird, like Forrest Gumpian edits with oh 70s movies. Movie, it's so unnecessary. There's two hours of stock footage. It made me appreciate Mariel Heller so much where it's just like, you want to do 1989? Do an abandoned bar in Queens. Yeah. Don't do like, (laughs) 
like robot Nixon. Like I, yeah. I, I want to know about what Howard Hughes says. The pre, it was just like the pre Seinfeld Upper West Side. Terrible. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think this movie's so hokey and cheesy. Hoaxy? What's that? Hoaxy, hoaxy and hokey. Uh, and I'm just like not. Richard Gere is no George Clooney. Richard Gere is no any of the other people we talked about. Dennis Quaid, whatever. Right. Um, he just he didn't charm me in this one. And these movies all hang on like, are you charmed? At least in a, like a process way. Would you these. buy the book? Would you buy the book? And it's just like I don't think I would. But I'm frustrated to know that book publishing did no questions asked. <laughs> so what are we gonna rate the hoax? Unfortunately, I think the hoax is a bad, bad. I'm going to give the hoax a bad good. Why? Because you enjoyed it so much. I had a great time watching it. That's fair. I think part of that might have been you. Oh. I know. I appreciate that. All these movies just get like a slight like letter grade bump when you're when we're around watching them together. 10, 10% curve. Um, but it's also a movie that's like, like I said, swinging so wildly between like smart character choices and like... Is this how you plan to stick the landing last house from? This is as dumb as a plan as Clifford Irving had. Yeah. Um, that there's no way it's a first good. So I'm going to give it a bad good. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Nick White, author yes. of Sweet and Low, short story collection. What is your favorite movie about a writer? So I've been debating between Shakespeare and Love and Stranger Than Fiction. And so I think I'm going to go with Stranger Than Fiction. What's the one with Will Ferrell? One with Will Ferrell and Emma Thompson. And I think the reason why I'm going to go with this movie is for one particular scene. And if you know anything about the movie, you know that Will Ferrell plays a down-and-out IRS uh, employee, um, sort of a schlubby guy, and he starts hearing his life narrated to him, and he realizes that he is in some sort of postmodern way has become the subject material of this famous author. And so he goes to sort of find this author, who she is, tries to meet with her, and and it because he hears in the narration, because it gives it away at the very beginning of the novel, or what she, that, you know, he is going to die, right? And so she go, he goes to this author to sort of explain to the Emma Thompson character, please don't kill me off. And she doesn't agree to do it. She's like, this is my book. This char- this novel, like there's no other way for this character to like survive in the book and the book to still be a good book. Like, I'm sorry. And at the end, there's a scene, it's like a penultimate scene with her because she's gotten to know him and she is having this conflict between knowing this person and loving him and then also the needs of her book. And so she's sitting there at her word processor machine, which I know is kind of cliche when you have movies about writers, but she is like smoking a cigarette and um, she's so frustrated trying to figure out how to end this book and not like kill this guy she has become close to. And she just starts banging the cigarette pack into the desk and just sort of hitting it with all this anger. Um, and you don't really know how she ends the book until, until much later. But at that moment has stuck with me because when I was writing Sweet and Low, one of the stories in there, well, I saw the, I saw the movie before I had started Sweet and Low and I, I didn't appreciate the scene then. 
Um, but when I was working on Sweet and Low, I had a similar moment with uh, one of the stories in there, the exaggerations. Um, I ended it, and I knew that it was not the right ending. It was about this narrator trying to narrate about his uncle and his uncle was in the closet and his uncle was known for telling these like wild exaggerations. And those were his ways of like hiding behind who he really was. And, um, and I knew when I ended that story that it needed to be one more passage. I needed one more paragraph and I knew what the paragraph had to say. And I had become so close to the characters in that story that it just was, it just, would gut me to write that last paragraph and I wrote it anyway and I think it made a better story but man did it hurt and that is like and I feel like when I write now that is like a feeling I kind of want to go towards because I feel like if we are writing about our characters if we don't care about them like they are real people then what's the point right they're not just pawns on a game that we're just sort of like moving around for the purpose of the story. But I think like our goal is to like believe that they're real people and so that we can like have them manifest on the page. But that comes at a cost, I think. Have any of your characters ever come to your apartment and asked to not be killed at the end of your story? Not yet. But I think about that. Like what would I do if one of my characters came to me and asked me, please don't make my life so miserable. What would I do? Have you cast your novel, How to Survive a Summer, and who would play hmm. Mother Maud? Oh, who would play Mother Maud? Oh, that's a good question. I was actually thinking Melissa McCarthy could play that. That would be like a good dramatic turn for her, even more depraved than her Can You Ever Forgive Me character. And her partner, who would play him? Father Drake? Yeah. I was thinking like a very, uh, very um, repressed uh, Kevin Bacon do you think that writers have been portrayed accurately in cinema? You know, like I, I feel like a lot of movies like to sensationalize writers' lives and make them seem probably more romantic than they are. Certainly with more money. Yes, exactly. And more money. And so you get, you get like, um, students especially my undergrads that I teach who have this idea of what a writer's life is you know and it's a great life um but it's one that is not sort of traveling the world and 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 you know endless cocktail parties and schmoozing and uh and that's just my life yeah yeah yeah. that's the life of an agent like a writer's life is really one of solitude and one of being with yourself and being okay with silence and being okay with um having everyone else think that your life sort of resembles failure because it takes so long to get things published and being sort of okay with that and being okay with like if you're lucky 90 percent of the thing only 90 percent of the things you do will be rejected and that's if you're lucky. And it's really about you and the page. And I was talking about this. I did a panel because we're at AWP. And I did a panel about envy and anxiety. And um, having sort of two books come out now and um, having some success with that, I can say without a shadow of doubt that like nothing 
feels as good as like writing good feels like no amount of accolades, no amount of money, no sort of good review. Nothing feels as good as figuring something out that you've been struggling with in a chapter or a story. Like right before I came to AWP, I had this problem in this novel that I'm working on that I spent like a week and a half trying to figure out. And right before I left, I finally think I figured it out. And that was like two days of like a great high. And um, nothing beats that, I don't think. And if you don't, if you don't go in it with that, then you really probably shouldn't be doing it. Thanks. Where can people find you? TheNickWhite.com or at NickWhite1985 where I have a Twitter presence. I am not on Instagram, but I'm being tempted. Thank you, sir. Thank you. The only thing that matters is the ending. It's the most important part of the story. And this one is very good. This one is perfect. For Mort Rainey, every story is a window into another world. But some windows should never be opened. You stole my story. I don't believe I know you. I know you, Mr. Rainey. That's what matters. You stole my story. Can we talk about Secret Window? Let's talk about Secret Window. Okay, so Secret Window is a a David Kep directed movie. Yeah, David Kep, famous screenwriter. Yeah, adapted your uh, Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. Uh, Mission Impossible. He's a writing credit on. No, the original, sure. Uh, yeah, the first De Palma one. Um, he has many impressive writing credits through the years, but he's also worked on a lot of Hollywood trash. Oh yeah, he's someone who likes living in LA. Yeah, Tony Hopkins <laughs> could be. He's hanging out with Anthony <laughs> Hopkins. Counting their piles of money. What's the the canonical story? Tony Hopkins could be the best British actor since Olivier, <laughs> but he likes living in Los Angeles too much. That's right. Yeah, David <laughs> Kep could be the next William Goldman, but he likes living in Los Angeles too much. Oh, man. I don't know if David... Because this one seems like... So imagine pitching this movie to executives. You have this really old but well-known author's property, this story called Secret Window, Secret Garden by Stephen King. You mean really old, like he wrote it very early. It's like a very early Stephen King story. And not, in my opinion, like a great one. It's not very different than the... It's not very much different than the movie. Um actually chatted to Justin Taylor about it earlier, so I feel confident that my read on it is good. Great. Love JT. And then you take a, uh, a writer trying to break out as a writer-director. I mean, it's like an executive's dream, but the movie is so... It's so unsure of how to be a movie, I would say. I think that's pretty true. So we have Mort Grady as... Great name. <laughs> Mort, Mort Rainey. Mort Rainey, not Grady. Mort Rainey. Um by playing by played by Johnny Depp, That's who right. is a writer after this traumatic discovery of his wife cheating on him is holed up in his beach house or his lake house. Um very uh, period accurate to Connecticut upstate New York wherever it is wherever it is in a commutable distance to New York City where he goes for his little adventures with his literary agent slash in-house muscle 
Can we talk about real, real quick? I'm so sorry to interrupt. David Kep, other David Kep directed movies. Please. Ricky Gervais's Ghost Town. <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Premium Rush. Oh, I did remember. Yeah, Premium Rush is one. And Johnny Depp's Mordecai. <laughs> oh, not Mordecai. So whenever people were like, let's give this project to David, not to write, but to run the whole set, like, who boy. Not great. Yeah, he's never made a good movie, I would say. Nope. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you were saying, so he's holed up in Connecticut, upstate New York, being really depressed. He's being really sad about his wife cheating on him. And John Turturro comes knocking and delivers this movie's only Looking quotable like a line. fire and brimstone preacher. <laughs> Looking like a door-to-door Bible salesman says, you stole my story. That's right. And Johnny Depp says no, and the dude leaves the manuscript. Never heard of you, pal. Yeah, never heard of you, pal. <laughs> then the manuscript somehow gets in the house. He brings it in, I guess. And then he tries to throw it away, but then the this maid that he has this really odd relationship with, he's like frightened of her. She's like a parent. Yeah. He's like afraid to smoke around her. Notices the manuscript in the trash and puts it out on the kitchen table. And goes through it and he realizes it's it is a plagiarism of the story he's written but in a magazine and then he believes the magazine was written two years before this guy mm-hmm. claims that he wrote the story so he's in the clear right so i gotta come clean i think at this point i was very excited to talk about this movie but also kind of dreading it because secret window was among my Holy top 10 favorite movies really? at age 14. You were much better at watching movies in your adolescent years than not me. just falling in love with any Hollywood bullshit. Just like that... Anything that came on the shelves like new at Hollywood video, I would just be like, this is probably pretty good. It's a new film. <laughs> this new <laughs> film is my favorite film. <laughs> I would just, it was it Jurassic Park 3 secret window? I'm going to throw it in and fall in love with it. And this movie works pretty well if um, I feel like my gag in my letterbox review. This movie works fantastic if you've, A, never seen a movie before, (laughs) never read a mystery novel, certainly never followed Johnny Depp's career to the present day, (laughs) been in a relationship, or like uh, met a writer. If you've never done any of those things, great movie. It is. I mean, at 14 and you in Omaha. Right. It was probably most of those things were true. Yes, so there's like quite... You couldn't predict the future. There's quite you didn't know a, where Johnny Depp was going. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't my fault. And there's quite a twist in this movie we won't talk about for just a little bit here at least. Well, worked, I certainly will at some point. It worked wonders on me because again, I had like seen, you know, 30 no movies. 30 movies. Yeah. I'd seen Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and this. And this was uh, right up there with, with all those great, great films. Yeah. That's so funny. Slightly ahead of Attack of the Clones in my 14-year-old oh my ratings. <laughs> Oh, my God. Um, Where to begin with that analysis? Well, but the movie is like, it's a mess. It is a mess. What fundamentally misunderstands, again, like what it means to be like this author. I can't wait to talk about this with you. And I'm like, it starts with the story that he's plagiarized. They both have the same sentence, which is something to the effect of... (laughs) A woman's not much of a woman if she takes your heart and breaks it. Right. So John decided to kill her. Right. 
which is not only a run-on sentence, right. it's also not a very good sentence. Not a good way to start a story. Not a great way to start a story. I mean, like maybe a very Stephen Kingian way to start a story, but... Yeah, where's the mystery in this Ellery Queen published story? He he said he killed her in the first sentence. Right. And when there's like a somewhat suspect like fake book in like a movie or something where it's like come on guy like nobody started a short story that was published anywhere meaningfully with that sentence so no i'm already pulled out of it but there's also like the lake house too like how did this fuck and he has another house and he has this other apartment and he's got all these goons this guy has more money than i think even like right now stephen king has (laughs) That can't be true. Um, but you know what this movie made me think about? What's that? We heard Nick White talk about, um, you know, just like what it is to be a writer, spending time alone, hacking it. You talked about like the the lifestyle from what you see of most of your clients. I feel like another, and I'm generalizing here, Please. but another thing that writers like really have in common, they have interests. Yes. They are super fucking interested in books and movies and life and bizarre side roads and professions and one of the things that this movie just like never comes close to is just like this is just a depressive man drinking mountain dew and napping all day he never reads he never watches anything he never uh, takes a robot rowboat out on the lake like yeah he doesn't have a routine nothing stimulates his mind or has ever apparently yeah, he just pulled these stories out of thin air and i think that johnny depp in a weird way is doing like not a good but like a funny job in like the year after uh pirates of the caribbean the first one right. so he's hot as hell um <laughs> and you can't touch him you can't touch him except for when this movie flopped uh he's doing this thing where he like wears this ratty robe and he like is touching his blonde streaked hair and he does this thing where he's always like grasping for things whether it's cigarettes or pages of his book or shit in his kitchen that he never reaches like his mind is running a thousand miles an hour but like his hand-eye coordination can't keep up with it and it's such a johnny depp like i'm a writer I'm I'm neurotic character choice when really it's like this man could not be his day could not be less interesting. Right. Well, I think my main issue with this movie is that this story is more or less a story about like overcoming or dealing with the effects of alcoholism. It's touched on only twice. But it's so apparent, though. Yes. In the way he's drinking non... Like, the way he's, like, suspiciously not drinking alcohol. Yeah. And then, like, it's never really stated why the marriage broke up in specific terms. Other Mm -hmm. than they, like, failed to reach some understanding. But it's out... What what they don't say is it's it's alcohol. Maria Bello says on the phone, like, your best friend was Jack Daniels in those days. Right. But also, I think she chalks it up more to, like... You were Fucking into writers. writing. Yeah. And I don't know. That's such a strange choice to... And then otherwise treat this movie like a David Kep kind of procedural kind of yeah. horror, thriller, psychological, M. Night Shyamalan, whatever right. this movie ends up being. I mentioned this to you the other day, but this movie is just... Uh, 
The Shining without a good director or like a full investigation of, you know, the it's it's the same movie. It's about a writer living in seclusion who goes mad and starts to believe something in like a hateful, toxic, masculine way about his wife. Right. But in this case, it's even more problematic because it's true. And it's yeah, like the movie sort of believes reason. that his his wife deserves to be murdered. I mean, like we don't have to fucking I hope uh, tie fourteen year old chance to the cross here, but like there <laughs> was a certain like creative kind of like dark masculine fallacy this movie is appealing to. That's like, what if the anti? I mean, I'll do it in the Johnny Depp John Shooter voice, but like, there's nobody here, darling. Like, what if the dark heart of man is the better writer? And it's like. But he also does such little writing. He yes. He eats a lot of corn. <laughs> he doesn't do a ton <laughs> of so tapping at the keys. No, he, he writes that one that sentence thing. and then no he deletes it. And then writing. he he seems to be on a roll though, like at the climax of the movie. Right. It argues but that murdering his wife made him a better guy writer but what's something. so funny about that though is in the epilogue of the movie like he looks so much worse it's like johnny depp got braces and invisible glasses rims and he looks and terrible. now he like stalks the local grocery store making people uncomfortable Ugh. because like he clearly murdered a bunch of people but, appreciate like, it if he wouldn't come into town anymore makes people uncomfortable why could they not like couldn't they find the bodies he didn't he like buried them in the backyard they didn't look in the backyard so we talk about the twist of the movie. You want to talk about any of the other actors? It's a it's a it's a TV production. Beyond really the fact is. that they clearly paid Johnny Depp fifteen million dollars, they be paid in this all movie. the money in this movie to the actors. All the other people: Maria Bello, Charles S. Dutton, Timothy Hutton. Yeah, um, Timothy Hutton playing this weird, like something that should have probably gone to like a Benjamin Bratt or something. It's a that would make a lot more sense because he would be like hotter and he'd be like, hotter and less of and a dork. Bigger. Yeah, instead of just like this is like Johnny Depp but with no talent. This is just dorky, douchey Johnny right. Depp, and he's already in this movie. And then the way Cap chooses to direct some flashbacks are just like so much like I don't know who has editorial oversight at during at like PBS Mystery Theater in oh two thousand four, but they'd be calling David Cap being like, "Tone down the flashbacks, brother." Oh my god, yeah. So the twist of the movie though. The twist of the movie Big is, spoilers uh, for Secret Window. Guys, if you haven't seen this movie now, it's on HBO though. You didn't see the twist coming, to be fair. Is it I because not, the movie is so ineptly directed? I did not see the twist coming. I will give the movie that. The twist is that John Turturro, who accuses Johnny Depp of stealing a story. You stole my story. Is in fact the same guy. Uh He's just invented this other personality, which you may or may not have known. he's so mad at women. Ugh. Yeah, because he really doesn't like that his wife cheated on him with Timothy Hutton. And frankly, I would feel pretty shitty too. (laughs) But that's only because of Timothy Hutton, not because she's a woman. No, I have nothing against her as a woman. It would just be that she picked Timothy Hutton over me. She could do better. If she had slept with Benjamin Bratt, you'd be fine with it. Yeah. So the twist of the movie is? This is some great cocaine twist of the movie is traffic reference what? twist of the movie is that john shooter is is johnny depp they're the same person john Turturro, johnny depp same dude sometimes johnny depp puts on a hat and starts speaking with a southern accent and giving him bad murder advice <laughs> and johnny depp sometimes does it and sometimes he doesn't do it and the name john shooter is really just him being like mort shoot her like you hodor the- hold the door 
Hodor, John Shooter, Mort Shooter. That's a great call. <laughs> um, yeah, it's his id. It's the part of himself that it's just like, I d- it's, it's just a weird like Nietzschean split. It's not that different than like no. Joker, but like, I do the things you can't. It's a uh, Green Goblin in the mirror talking to Willem Dafoe. For the whole, but that that's like the secret of the movie. Yes. That's the secret window, if you will. Mm. Um, this movie also came around right around the time of that movie Identity, which was also like a similar movie where it's like this horror movie's playing out in the mind of this one guy who is like 13 distinct personalities. Oh. Which is like a split? proto split. Yeah. Um, so there was a certain interest in the early 2000s about like, what if it's all in your fucking head, man? Right. A real Shutter Island. This movie is so much like Shutter Island. Shutter Island, to be fair, is not a good movie. I like Shutter Island. You, but then again, I liked would. this movie <laughs> for a long time. You did like this movie. And it's I mean, not I understand good. why. It's like weird and morbid and like Johnny Depp is really... If you've, watched, if you've seen Johnny Depp in anything recently, he is like fucking catatonic. <laughs> Yeah. The the whole joke about him putting on so many bracelets and scarves and doing weird Mad Hatter accents, the result is that if he now tries to do anything but that, he like he can no longer move his face. He's just has like fifty years of wine face. And in this movie he's very good looking in this like two thousands core kind of weird blonde streak. I mean, this is before his life like really went to hell, I think. Yes, for sure. Um, this is a choice that led to that downfall, I would say. Yeah, I think it's like a it's a pretty interesting movie star performance. It's 88 minutes long. I'm going to give it I can't go full referendum on myself. I'm going to give it a bad good. I agree with you that it's a bad good. Yeah. I think that it's stupid. Wild swings. And foolish. Hilarious to rip it's apart. It's so funny. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun to watch. Um I mean unless you're my girlfriend Lucy, who while we were watching this, asked the always positive question of "Why are you watching this?" Um, but I thought it was enjoyable. Again, the, on a Saturday afternoon when I love to watch movies. Yeah, what's the face she makes when you inevitably answer in one word podcast to that question? She just like kind of nods and goes into the other room. Yeah, ridiculous movie about a man who behaves like a writer because Johnny Depp's like a writer has mannerisms. <laughs> Right, writers do have mannerisms. If I've learned nothing from this four days in Portland, Oregon. We're going to change up our format going forward. Uh, I'm going to say my political feelings and Chance is going to stoically not say anything back. Yeah, I like to wait about 45 seconds before That's what we decided over coffee yesterday. The ramblings of a madman. Yeah, got into the free market. (laughs) But the... (laughs) But it was great to see you. We consumed enough coffee to kill two different people. And God, uh, we kept this city afloat for a couple of days. Absolutely. Um, it's been good. Eating a lot of peanut butter and jelly and fried chicken sandwiches here, man. That was your choice. I had no part in that. Who knew a, a place called PBJ Grills was only going to have peanut butter and jelly with fried chicken on it? We got some ups for Portland institutions on this pod, and we got some downs very late. <laughs> in the show um roses and thorns i always just like 
I'm always looking forward to the next time we can do a podcast like this. Yeah. Maybe this summer sometime you'll come to NYC. I'm trying to come out to NYC. We can definitely watch a lot of movies. Are you sure? Yeah. We can just hang in the apartment. It'll be hot as hell, but I have a big air conditioner. Oh, yeah, Noah's got a new apartment. Yeah. You have to come check it out. We have a Jaws-themed bathroom. You'll love it there. Oh, man. Farewell and adieu, dear listeners. Um, Buddy, great to behold you face-to-face here. Okay. Can't wait to see you again. Bye now. If I could read your mind, love, what a tale your thoughts could tell. Just like a paperback novel, the kind of drugstore sells. When you reach the part where the heartaches come, the hero 